business before the very throne room of God that Isaiah is visioning this massive throne. And then the privilege from chapter 6 then to chapter 9, knowing that that holy, holy God is going to come to the earth. Emmanuel, a God with us. And then as we've been working our way through these 66 uh, chapters, we're coming to the end now. And it all comes down to, as we've been looking at this amazing section in the 50s and the 60s, it's all coming down to a new heaven and a new earth. And just like the Bible as a whole divided up in the 66 books, uh, the book of Isaiah is divided up into 66 chapters, and literally a microcosm of the Bible, starting out at the very beginning, holy, 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 and now in chapter 66, when we get to that next week, we're going to see a new heaven and a new earth, a glimpse into eternity itself in the future. But the amazing thing is, as we start in chapter 62, we get to see the difference again of how God is going to bring that salvation to us. In Isaiah chapter 62, starting in verse 1, it says, For Zion's sake I will not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. You shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no longer be termed forsaken. Nor shall your land any more be termed desolate, but you shall be called Hephzibah, and your land Beulah. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride so shall your God rejoice over you. So Father, tonight as we approach this amazingly exalted text, to get a glimpse into the very um, bride celebration, the celebration of the Lamb's wedding feast, where we as the bride get to be there. And so, Lord, tonight, as we look upon these amazing chapters, help us to get a glimpse of eternity and how you've come to this earth for us so that we could also be with you. Lord, I, I thank you so much for these, uh, my friends and my family here in our midst right now, for those that are serving our, our children out there on the quad, for Jeff that's in the back, and for our pastors, Lord, we lift up to you today. Pastor Jason and, and Pastor Mike Atkinson and Pastor Mike Butler and Pastor Mike Cosper and Pastor Mike Ostheimer, Lord, we lift them up to you now. Lord, after long, hard days, I know that they serve behind the scenes in many, many capacities, Lord. Uh, help them to have rest tonight, Lord. I thank you so much for what you're doing in our church. I ask that you continue to give a, a clear vision to our elders, uh, Larry and Ron, during this time, Lord, that you would be uh, guiding this church according to your will, according to your plan, Lord. We thank you so much for what you're doing in our midst. And Lord, please, as we ask tonight, give us wisdom to understand your word and then to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Don't you love these big names? <clears throat> uh, you know, the, the, the Hebrew names, yeah, Hevzabah. Uh, Beulah, right? I was thinking this, I mean, if I had known this word, I, I would love uh, to name, you know, I, I don't know about a, a kid, but maybe, you know, a, a pet uh, or, or something like that. Something that would have that name. Do you understand? Have you ever looked at the definitions of Hebrew words or, or Hebrew names or, or names that are in the Bible? You see, this is one of the most beautiful definitions 
Literally, Hephzibah means my delight is in her. My delight is in her. To understand that God delights in his people. Specifically referring to Israel in this context, but also including the Gentiles. Anyone without a single drop of Jewish blood in them. You see, God had always had his eye on the whole world, as we know. In fact, in verses 1 and 2, it includes both Israel, Jerusalem, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Israel and Judah, but also the nations surrounding the Gentiles, us. It says in verse 1, For Zion's sake I will not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness. Isn't the plan of God always amazing? To know that God is reaching out, not just to a specific nation or a specific people group, but to everyone. In fact, as we see in the rest of these verses, who is he reaching out to? And not only those that are in the upper echelon of society, the kings and royalty and, and those that are within the upper class, but also he reaches out to everyone. Who is he bringing salvation to? All kings shall see your glory. They shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. You shall be a, also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. What is that like? Remember, we, we learned a couple of weeks ago that your name is literally written in the palm of his hand. But that when you get to heaven, Revelation says, that you will be given a white stone. And guess what's going to be on that white stone? A new name for you. The, the privilege of being able to look at that stone and, and seeing my name, my, my real name, that God has named me with. Maybe something as beautiful as Hezebah. Or, or Beulah. Don't you love that word? It literally, Beulah means married. In fact, there's an old hymn. I don't know the tune of it. Don't ask me for it. Uh, you can probably ask Shane or one of the guys in the back. I'm sure they'll know this tune. Uh, but you, it, I mean, it, the words are beautiful, by the way. The words are absolutely amazing. It says, my Savior comes and walks with me. And sweet communion here have we. He gently leads me by his hand, for this is heaven's borderland. O Beulah land, sweet Beulah land, as on thy highest mount I stand. I look away across the sea where mansions are prepared for me. And view the shining glory shore, my heaven, my home forevermore. Do you know that you will be married to Christ? I don't know what your marriage is like, but even the most perfect marriage on earth will pale in insignificance. Literally. Compared to your marriage with the amazing God of the universe. And that we will get the privilege of being uh, there. The, the hymn continues, by the way. I'll just read the last two verses here. It says, Oh, a sweet perfume upon the breeze is born from ever vernal trees and flowers that never fading grow where streams of life forever flow. The zephyrs seem to float to me, sweet sounds of heaven's melody as angels with the right white-robed throng join in the sweet redemption song. Isn't that beautiful? To understand that not only is this taken literally from this chapter, but how many people are missing out on these types of chapters. 
You see, a lot of the time when we go through, whether it's the book of Isaiah or, or you know, these Old Testament books, a lot of times we skip around. Well, we will, we'll look at, you know, Isaiah chapter 9 during, you know, Christmas. We'll, we'll skip ahead to Isaiah chapter 53 at Easter time. But these are all the segues. These are all the buildups. The privilege of reading these as we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book on these Wednesday nights. And I enjoy this time with you. Verse 5, <clears throat> it's uh, according to our, you know, um, uh, culture today, this is a very, very foreign verse. This is a backwards verse in our culture. What does it say in verse 5? This, this is what it's going to be like. This, this is why marriage is reserved for a, a, a certain um, uh, status, for, for a virgin to marry a virgin. There's a purpose behind it that doesn't just relate to purity here on this earth. But it shows something even deeper. Our marriage to God himself. You see, to understand that God makes you righteous and pure. Why? Because he wants to be with you forever and ever and ever. Verse 5, it says, For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. What is that saying? God is the groom is going to come in all of his majesty. Whether it's the parables in the New Testament of the ten virgins that are waiting for that groom uh, to come. Or the book of Revelation where we see the marriage of the groom, the Lamb of God to the church, the bride, and all of her purity. That beautiful dress made up of the very works of the saints. Can you imagine that? You, you, you stitching every single one of the, the works that you do in the name of Jesus Christ stitched into that beautiful wedding dress. The, the privilege of knowing that if you know Jesus Christ personally, you can be a part of that throng. But in verses 6 and 7, it continues on. I have set a watchman on your walls, O Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace day or night. You who make mention of the Lord, do not keep silent and give him no rest till he is established, until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. What is it saying about your testimony? Are we supposed to keep it in? No. On Monday nights, the men, we've been going through the book of Ezekiel and this this word watchman comes up frequently within the book of Ezekiel. In fact, the theme of the book of Ezekiel is watchman. And of course, you all know, we repeated this many, many times, but the watchman had two jobs. They had to watch, literally in the name of the title, and then they had to warn. When they saw danger coming, what was their job? To warn. They were not to be silent. They were not to keep silent. Just as Isaiah is warning uh, the people of uh, Jerusalem. Uh, verses 8 and 9. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength. Surely I will no longer give your grain as food to your enemies. And the sons of the foreigners shall not drink your new wine. For which you have labored by those who have gathered it shall eat it and praise the Lord. Those who have brought it together shall drink it in my holy courts. What, what was the very blessing that Abraham was to share with the world itself? The blessing of God going through, yes, the descendants of Abraham, the Israelites, but who was it supposed to be directed toward? The Gentiles, the nations. Were they supposed to keep the blessings of God to themselves? No, they were supposed to be a blessing to everyone that they came into contact with. And the purpose of that 
was to bring them into a right relationship with God, to show the world the blessings of God, that he would bless a nation that despite the fact that everybody in the entire world, especially all those that are around them, wanted to exterminate them. And yet God still keeps them as a nation. Even to this day when those such as the Assyrians and the Babylonians are no longer even in existence. Yet who still inhabits the land even today? The Israelites. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway. Take out the stones, lift up a banner for the people. Indeed, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, surely your salvation is coming. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. You go to Jerusalem today, and to know that those walls and the you know the city itself, yes, it was destroyed after this was written, but it was rebuilt during the time of Nehemiah. It was rebuilt during the time of this time period that we're seeing here, this beautiful place that God has, and what is it a significance of? Who does it point to? The glory of God within a city itself, a light on a hill, the beautiful land, the one that God blesses. In fact, this points to and refers to Matthew chapter 21, verse 5, which is a combination, by the way, of this verse and then also Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. The prediction is Jesus is walking or literally riding through uh, the gates of Israel, going down the streets of Jerusalem as the people are literally cutting down these palm fronds after they have already laid down their robes, after they've already taken off their coats and laid those down, they run out and what do they do? They start cutting down palm branches. In prediction of this verse, and it says it in Matthew chapter 21, verse 5, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming. And who is he coming to? You. Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a donkey. That Palm Sunday as we celebrate. Unfortunately, what would happen at the end of the week? Those same people that laid down their coats, those same people that cut down those palm fronds, what did they shout? Crucify him. Crucify him. Isaiah chapter 63. The tone changes, by the way. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra, the one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength? Do you guys know Edom, right? Uh, who, who was the, the forefather of Edom? Just, just yell it out. Esau, right? Which, by the way, is the twin brother of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And of course, literally Esau, Edom means red. They, they were known just as Esau was as a, you know, a very, very tough group of people. Just as their forefather Esau was. You remember what Esau did? He, he loved to hunt. He was the favorite of his dad, right? He had that smell of the game on him. He had the smell of the outdoors on him, and he was known for his red hair. And what did he do when Esau, or when Jacob tricked him after coming home hungry one day? What did Jacob do? I'll, I'll trade you this, you know, bowl of red beans, a little bit of bread. 
for your birthright. And what did it do to the relationship between those twins that were literally in the womb together? And for the next 40 years, they fought. So much so that if Esau had seen Jacob within that time, what would he have done? And who would have won? Not the mama's boy. Not, not the one that worked in the house, of course. It would have been Esau. But thanks to the Lord, what did he do? He changed not only Esau's heart, but he brought them back together after the end. But unfortunately, their you know, descendants would fight. In fact, the Edomites, if you look forward into the book of Genesis later on, Joseph was sold into slavery, first of all, by his brothers. But who were the ones that bought Joseph? If you look at the text in chapter 39, it literally, it says the Edomites. They traded in flesh. They traded in slaves. They traded even their third, fourth, fifth cousin, whoever he was, Joseph, to them, to the Egyptians. The Edomites. And who's going to come from this red people? The descendants of Esau, verse 2. Why is your apparel red? Literally, the definition of Esau. The definition of Edom. And your garments like one who treads in the winepress. What is the color of the wine as they're treading? You know it. Red. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples, no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger, and have trampled them in my fury. Your, their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. By the way, every single one of these personal pronouns is capitalized. Who is it referring to? Jesus Christ himself. No longer coming as a groom, but how is he coming now? In wrath. In judgment. Same person, different roles. First time Jesus comes, what does he do? Meek. On a foul of a donkey. Not freeing his people from the bondage of Rome, but from something greater, sin itself. But how does he approach even the Roman governor? How does he approach even the Roman rulers? He doesn't even say a word. He comes as a lamb ready for the slaughter. But how is he going to come the second time? Do you see it here? Judgment. Sword coming out of his mouth. Blood and fury. Verses 4 and 5. For the day of vengeance is in my heart. And the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. And I wondered, but there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me. And my own fury, it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. Are you scared? Same person, different roles. The groom and the one bringing the wrath of God. By the way, and I'll just throw this out there because it, it comes up in the next section here what, what are we actually saved from uh, and thank god that when jesus christ died he, he bore our sins upon his body 100 he saves us from sin itself but more importantly he saves us from the consequences the punishment the judgment for sin. The wrath of God itself. Oh, the understanding that if I do not have the righteousness of God on me, 
what will happen to any person on the day of judgment? What will happen? Eternal separation, the wrath of God, fully exposed upon a person. Can anyone save, as it says here, can anyone bring even a single cleansing of one of your sins? I know I can't. Only Jesus Christ himself. He's the only one that can bring salvation. Not a pastor, not a political figure, not a single person. Only God himself, incarnate, Emmanuel, God, salvation coming to the earth. But by the way, what is the definition of Jesus? Salvation. Salvation. Here on this earth, walking for us. Verse 7, I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praise of the Lord according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindness. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not lie. So he became their uh, savior. And if you know anything of the history of Israel, uh, you, you know that there is no way uh, that the nation of Israel was ever known for their truthfulness. In fact, just as we mentioned earlier, what was the very first thing that is known in the scriptures about Jacob and his brother? He was known for deceit. And then what did he do? Just the very next chapter, what does he do? He deceives his dad. And then in the very next chapter, he himself is deceived by his father-in-law and then deceives his father-in-law in the very next chapter. It, it's the history of Israel is all about deceit. That's why when Jesus saw, uh, you know, one of his disciples there literally sitting under the palm tree, I, I, the name just skipped me. I, 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 Kevin can tell you the name because I just told him yesterday. But, but the, uh, the understanding is that there can be an Israelite without deceit. An Israelite without deceit. Because what were the Israelites known for? Deceit. Lying. But what will God do? He will remove the lies from their lives. Verses 9 and 10, and all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them in his love, and in his pity, he redeemed them, and he bore them, and he carried them all the days of old, but they rebelled, and they grieved his Holy Spirit, so he turned himself against them as an enemy, and he fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people, saying, where is he who brought them up? Out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock. Where is he who puts his Holy Spirit within them? Now, you know, most of us understand that when the Holy Spirit came down on the day of Pentecost, there in Acts, uh, in the book of Acts, that, that's, you know, the privilege that we know that the Holy Spirit comes down upon a group of people, 120 there in the upper room, right? But that's not the first time we see the Holy Spirit. We see the Holy Spirit all the way back in creation itself. And as it says here, we see it in every single miracle for the people of Israel in the wilderness wandering. Including the very last of the miracles in the nation of Egypt itself. To, to know that the Holy Spirit was there watching over the people of Israel, the fire and the cloud. The one, as it says here, who literally helped them through the Red Sea. The guiding hand of God himself, the third person of the Trinity. Not, not just an entity or, or a, um, a, a, an it or just a thing, but literally the person of God represented among the people of Israel. By the way, when the tabernacle was built, who descended upon that tabernacle? 
the Spirit of God. When Solomon dedicated that beautiful golden temple, one of the most beautiful structures in Israel at that time, who descended? The Spirit of God. Into the literal holy of holies, God here on earth. I love verse 12. Who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm dividing the water before them to make for himself an everlasting name who led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they might not stumble. Who was leading the Israelites the whole time? Despite the fact that even as they stepped out of Egypt, what were they doing? Complaining. As they wandered in the wilderness, what were they doing? Complaining. God still was with them, even in their rebellion. Verses 14, 15, and 16, as a beast goes down into the valley and the spirit of the Lord causes him to rest. So you lead your people and make yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see from your habitation, holy and glorious, where are your zeal and your strength, the yearning of your heart and your mercies toward me? Are they restrained? Every single one of these verses, we see the glorious name of God. And it's portrayed on a people that don't deserve that name. And, oh, by the way, it's easy to look at the Israelites. But when I look at myself, I see the same thing. Is it easy for us to complain? Is it easy for us to rebel? Is it easy for us to go back? Is it easy for us to turn aside? But God has put his holy name on you, his glorious name. He sealed us with his Holy Spirit. And the privilege of knowing that God is with us despite who we are. Or as it says in verse 16, doubtless you are our father, though Abraham was ignorant of us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from everlasting is your name. You see, redemption has always been plan A. Not just when Adam failed or when Adam sinned, but even before. From everlasting, from the past eternity, God always had redemption in his mind. Even before sin was on the earth, God had redemption in mind. From everlasting past, his name is everlasting, or excuse me, is redemption or redeemer. You see, redemption is never an afterthought in the mind of God. Redemption is always on the forefront. He's always willing to redeem. He's always willing to reach out. Despite who we are. Or as verse 17 through 19 we see this, so oh Lord, why have you made us stray from your ways and hardened our heart from your fear? Those questions that we ask, blaming God, return for your servants' sake, the tribes of your inheritance, your holy people have possessed it. But for a little while, our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary. We have become like those of old over whom you never ruled, those who were never called by your name, this is referring to the Gentiles, those that will come in, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. We just finished the book of Habakkuk on Wednesday morning, this morning. And the same questions that Habakkuk asked, by the way. God, are you there? God, do you care? And God, is it fair? That you would persecute us. That you would choose a nation that is worse than us to discipline us. To judge us. But do you understand in the economy of sin, do all of us deserve judgment? 
none of us are holier than one another. All of us deserve hell. But what does God do in his mercy and grace? He saves us. And not a single one of us deserve it. But God reaches out to us and thank God for that. And by the way, he did warn the Israelites over and over and over again. This isn't the first time. This is over a period of literally a thousand years. The prophets have been coming over and over and over again. But the Israelites rebel. Chapter 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake your presence as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence when you did awesome things for which we did not look. You came down, the mountains shook. At your presence, Isaiah is literally looking back to all those times when God literally shook the earth. Whether it was the burning bush in the wilderness, as it says in verse 2, or whether it was when God rained fire during the time of Elijah. When God literally split the earth during the rebellion of Korah. All the miracles of old. God, just show me one more time. Don't you love asking those type of questions, too? I, I do. But do you understand what faith literally means? That I believe. That I believe. Even though we weren't there, do we still believe? Do, we, do I still believe every single word in the scripture itself? And the same thing with the people of Israel. Judgment's coming. The Babylonians are literally going to be at the door of the city of Jerusalem. Verse 4, for since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God beside you who acts for the one who waits for him. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. And by the way, this word literally means missed the mark. This word has multiple definitions, including uh, transgress. To literally walk in a place that we are not supposed to be. No trespassing. On the gate in big bold letters. And what happens so many times? Many times we, we think that our sin doesn't hurt anybody or, or it's just small or, or it's just a little white lie or it's just a little trespass or it's just a little transgression or it's just a little iniquity. Look at the descriptions in Isaiah. And, and by the way, I know you've heard these verses before. You may not know where they're at, but tonight you get to see where they're at. And the amazing context that these are in. In these ways we continue and we need to be saved. Every single person. Why? Because we're sinners. Look at what sin is like. Verse 6. But we are all like an unclean thing. By definition, what does the word all mean? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All, everybody, right? No one is without excuse. But look at the description. And all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. If you've been in this church anytime, you know what this is referring to. This is the PG version, by the way. This is the, the, the King James version, the New King James version. Literally, if you look up this word, it literally means minstrel rags. 
blood-stained. And things that would be thrown away. The understanding that it's something that is um, unclean. Filthy. And that's our righteousness, by the way. That's all the good things we, we try to make ourselves feel better with. Anything that I do in my own works, anything that I do for myself, no matter how good it is, giving, you know, to the pot and, you know, as you're walking into the store, helping a homeless person, you know, e even, you know, doing good things for people, picking someone up or, or taking them someplace or feeding a person or, or just doing something nice. If I do any of those things in my own strength or in my own good name, quote unquote, what is it worth? Nothing. Nothing. It doesn't help you one iota. But those same things, if I do them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, if I do them for his glory, and this is the amazing way of God's economy, what does he see? Even the littlest act in the name of Jesus Christ. Not, not donating a million bucks. But even just a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus Christ. What is that like in the eyes of God? Oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And there's a difference. Because these things, these, these filthy rags, are things that I've tried to do in my own strength rather than in the name of the Lord. Or as it says in the rest, and this of course alludes again to the New Testament, we all fade as a leaf. What happens to all those leaves that are falling off the trees? They're beautiful now, but what's going to happen to them? Or what has already happened to them? Piled up and thrown away, right? That's what happens to all those leaves. Here today, gone tomorrow. The trees are all bare, right? They had that beauty for, a, a, you know, maybe a week or two, but then what happens to them? They all fall off, they fade, they get burned up, they get thrown away, and all our iniquities like the wind has taken us away. By the way, this word iniquities, and in many times, you know, we, again, we, we like to explain things away. But this literally means I choose to do it. It's not something I stumble into. It's not something I accidentally did. But it's something I purposely chose to do. To offend the God of the universe. Iniquity. Verse 7, and there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. Where does the blame fall? Where does the blame fall? On us. On me. My sins. Uh, no one else made me sin. No one else makes you sin. You purposely choose to sin. Whether it's anger whether it's, you know, um, something that you may do, a lie, or whether it's something you choose to do, even if it's in private. What does God call it? Iniquities. But now, Lord God, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. And all we are the work of your hand. But what happens when I choose to put myself in the hands of God? What does he do with that lump of clay? He molds it into a vessel that he can use. Isn't that amazing? We're going to see it more, by the way, when we get to the book of Jeremiah and the book of uh, Ezekiel later on. 
but the privilege of knowing that God uses this lump of clay literally. And by the way, you know, how was Adam made? Lump of clay, right? He brings it out, molds it into something that's useful. Do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities are a wilderness. Your Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem is a desolation. Our holy and beautiful temple, by the way, referring all the way back to chapter 62, that word Beulah, the same word used here, temple where our fathers praised you is burned up with fire and all our pleasant things are laid waste. What was once exquisite beauty. And by the way, Isaiah saw that beautiful temple that King Solomon made. What's going to happen to that beautiful temple? Within literally a hundred years, what will happen? It'll be torn down. It will be destroyed. Will you restrain yourself because of these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very severely? The judgment of God is coming. Chapter 65. I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, according to their own thoughts. A people who provoke me to anger continually to my face, who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars of bricks, who sit among the graves and spend the night in the tombs, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of abominable things in their vessels, who say, Keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils of fire that burns all dead all the day. What would you do to a person that treated you that way? Let alone the God of the universe. What would you do? Constantly rebelling, constantly, you know, thumbing their nose at you, uh, constantly, literally turning their back on you. Stiff-necked, hard-hearted people. What would you do? Many of us would have given up a long time ago. But not the God of the universe. Not God in his infinite mercy and grace. Why? As we learned earlier, it all goes down to his glorious name. Despite the fact that they were a rebellious people, that we are still a rebellious people. What does God do in our midst? He shows his perfect redemption in a rebellious people that don't deserve it. By the way, you can go into even greater detail within these verses. They're rebellious. They don't seek me. They are angry toward me all the time. They sit in grave. They're unclean. They sit amongst dead things. They entreat the dead or they worship uh, the dead. They, you know, eat these abominable things in their vessels. And what do they say in verse 5? I'm better than you. I'm holier than you. A Pharisee at heart, even before the name. Uh, We're better than everybody else on the planet because we're the chosen people of God, right? What what did the Sadducees and the Pharisees say in the New Testament? We're descended from Abraham, right? What did, you know, not only John the Baptist, but also Jesus himself make these rocks children of God, right? I can raise up children of Abraham right from these rocks. To know that we too can be very, very um, insensitive to those around us. We too can blame the Israelites when we do a lot of the same things, unfortunately. Verse 6, behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but will repay. Even repay into their bosom 
your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, says the Lord. You have burned incense on the mountains and blasphemed me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom, literally into their intestines, their inward parts. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, do not destroy it. For a blessing is in it, so I, or so will I do for my servants' sake that I may not destroy them all. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah, an heir of my mountains. My elect shall inherit it, my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall be a fold of flocks in the valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me will God save a remnant yes he will by the way there's a lot of illusions here but just the one that literally sticks out to me is is the valley of ache or it comes from one of my favorite texts in all the bible the book of Hosea and that beautiful text that says Hosea chapter 2 verses 15 and 16 I will give her vineyards from there in the valley of Achor as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt, and it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you shall call me my husband and no longer call me my master, that adulterous wife. God will reach out and cleanse and buy back. But do you know where that literal valley of Achor is? It refers all the way back to a little town called Ai in the book of Joshua. Where a guy by the name of Achan took some things, took some things from Jericho, buried it underneath his tent. And then when they tried to take Ai, this little town that was nowhere even in comparison to Jericho in terms of, you know, walls or might or an army, they were defeated. They literally turned tail and ran. The Valley of Achor. What will God do to their rebellion, their sin, their fear? They're turning back against God. What will God do? Turn a valley of Achor into a door of what? Hope. By the way, that's what God does to many of our failures too. Our worst sins, our worst failures, our worst times when, when we ourselves struggle against whatever it may be. Can God turn those things into our greatest hope, our greatest strength? Only God, by the way. Only God, by the way. Verses 11 and 12, but you are those who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who prepare a table uh, for uh, Gad, and who furnished a drink offering for Manah. Therefore, I will number you for the sword, and you shall all bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear, but did evil before my eyes, and chose that in which I do not delight. This iniquity, this word literally being described, choosing to rebel against God. And what will God do? He still reaches out. He still redeems. Amazing. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servant shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart. And wail for grief of spirit. You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen. For the Lord God will slay you and call his servants by another name. So that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. He who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten. And because they are hidden from my eyes. What will God do to every single one of our iniquities. As we learned earlier in the book of Isaiah, bury them in the deepest sea. 
separate them as far as east is from the west. Why, why, why would God do that for us, a rebellious people? Because in verse 17, for behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or even come to mind. Is it easy to remember our failures in this life? Satan loves to bring them up. But do you understand what will happen in heaven? You won't remember them. Isn't that amazing? They won't even be brought up. Forgotten for all of eternity. All of your failures. All of your sin. All of your iniquity. God will never once bring them up. God will never once remind us. They will be forgotten. And we will get to enjoy heaven forever and ever, as it says here in verses 18. And by the way, again, paralleling the, the Bible as a whole, we see the very last book of the Bible, Revelation itself, alluded to. In this amazing chapter, chapter 65, and also again in chapter 66 too as well. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. Who's going to build heaven? Who's going to build the new heaven and the new earth? Who's preparing a mansion for you? You know the answer. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her. Where have you heard that before? Again, in the book of Revelation, what will he do to every single tear? Wipe it all away. Nor the voice of crying, nor more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days, for the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall the days of my people and my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble, for they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. What happens at the end of a long day when you work here on the earth? You're tired. And we call, of course, you know, heaven rest. Rest in peace, right? But it goes even deeper than that. To understand that you're not just going to be sitting around in heaven. But everything that you do in heaven will be rest. Isn't that amazing? The, the, the privilege of knowing that everything that you do in heaven will have a purpose. That it won't just be done in vanity or in vain. That we get to the privilege of seeing God and serving him. As it says in Revelation chapter 21 verses 1 through 4. And again saying this exact same phrase by the way that's here in Isaiah chapter 65 verse 17. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea than I, John, saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Exactly what we've been seeing here in Isaiah. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. The shadows of the Old Testament revealed in the New Testament. And guess what? You that know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, you will get to experience that firsthand with eyes that are new. 
the beauty of heaven itself. Verses 24 and 25, we'll end it here. And it shall come to pass, and you've probably heard this before too, that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. Well, the wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. And they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. The lion shall lay with the lamb. Or as it says here, the wolf and the lamb. But what does it say about the serpent? And I just want to bring this out and just something to chew on when you leave. What does it say about the serpent? This is a fulfillment, literally. And by the way, this is one of the last prophecies to be fulfilled and one of the first prophecies to be made in the Bible. Because what does it say in Genesis chapter 3? You remember the, the curse. You remember after... Eve, you know, ate of that fruit and then tempted her husband and Adam ate. He chose to sin himself. He sinned. There was a curse put upon the earth, right? Men would have to work and sweat for their food. And then woman would have a, a painful uh, childbearing. There would be enmity between, you know, the husband and the wife. That goes all the way back to the curse. You can blame Adam and Eve for all your fights as a married couple. But also, there was a, a curse put upon the serpent. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, this is the curse. So the Lord God said to the serpent, one of the first prophecies in Genesis, and it's going to be fulfilled in the book of Revelation. Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field on your belly. You shall go and you shall eat dust. All the days of your life. Not, not, not a snake. Not, not a reptile. Okay. Not referring to that. To Satan himself. Cursed. For all of eternity. And when will that be fulfilled? In the book of Revelation. The lake of fire. Reserved for Satan. And his angels. For the first time in eternity. When Satan will not be allowed to tempt you any longer. Amen. Where he will eat dust. Or as it says here in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 14. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. That capital S referring to Jesus Christ. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. Calvary's cross. Defeating death itself. Satan himself. And yes, we still experience the, you know, the, the temptation of sin. We still experience the, the consequences of our, our temporal sin here on this earth. But thank God one day what will happen. No longer remember. The consequences of sin no longer experienced. Why? Because God is victorious. God will fulfill every single prophecy, even the most obscure ones. That go from Genesis to Revelation. Next week we get to finish Isaiah chapter 66. Please read uh, that amazing chapter. It, it, is, it will blow you Away, we'll spend quite a bit of time on Isaiah chapter 66, but also hopefully next week we'll be able to start the book of Jeremiah too, uh, which will also be a, another uh, amazing uh, book. And, and we will be meeting next week. I know I got some questions uh, earlier in the, uh, while I was walking around earlier, if we're going to have a, uh, a service before Thanksgiving. Yes, we will. Wednesday night, we will still be meeting here. If you have family and friends in town, bring them. It's okay. Just bring them, you know. I'm looking forward to seeing you. God bless you. Dear Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of your word. That it truly is a privilege to read your word. Even these uh, obscure sections in the Bible that we may have never read or even heard a sermon on, Lord. 
I thank God that we go through the Bible. I thank God that, that we are, are here, that these, these, my friends and family, could be anywhere else, but yet they're here, Lord. I ask that you massage all these words into our heart, that maybe the things that I, I skipped over, the things that I didn't explain that well, or the things that, you know, maybe were, were uh, uh, confusing to us, Lord, I ask that you would help us as we read these chapters this coming week, that you would uh, bring those things to mind, that, that you would show us from your word, that you would speak to us, Lord. Or when we're talking to someone this week, that you would remind us of these things and help us to share them with someone else. Help us not to be silent. Help us desire to follow after you. Help us not to choose sin. Help us instead to lead those that are lost to you. Help us to be the watchmen. Help, help us to see that we have the privilege of knowing a surety of where we will go. A new heaven and a new earth reserved for us for eternity. And so, Lord, thank you so much for being our redeemer from everlasting. Remind us of that. Let it change our lives so that we are different from when we walked into this room. And as we walk out, help us to encourage one another, love upon one another, be there for one another. Uh, during whether it's the hard times or the good times, Lord, we thank you so much for fellowship, for the body of Christ that we get to share eternity with. Lord, thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for coming.